So, as you know, went to Israel. It was an amazing trip, nine days of touring. The way we do it is not as exhausting as it could be. Uh, we get up, we have breakfast, and between 8 and 9 we leave, and we tour, and then we're back for dinner. But some groups, they're up at 6, they're leaving at 7, and they're back after sundown. So I just thought, you know what, we're going to make this bearable. And even though it was bearable, it was still exhausting, because Israel's like this. And a lot of our walking is up hills and down hills. And we had probably two, three, four, five days in the 80s, and then a couple days around, right around 100. So in the 80s were nice, right around 100, not so nice. Israel's more humid than Tucson. Um, Israel, when we were there, kind of feels like now, like 50% humidity. Not kind of like the 8% humidity we're used to, you know. So what I'm going to do is just take you to some of the spots we went this Sunday and next Sunday. And maybe even the third Sunday, I don't know. I'm trying to not share too much with you. Don't want to bore anybody. So let us start off with the very first picture. This is in Joppa. How many of you have ever heard of Joppa before? Let me see your hands. Yeah, Joppa is a famous biblical city. Actually, one of the oldest ports in the world is there. You can see the Mediterranean Sea behind our group. So that's our, us. And in the background, you see all those skyscrapers? It's Tel Aviv. So Tel Aviv pretty much encompassed and surrounded the ancient city of Joppa. A lot of things have happened in Joppa over time. Um, one of the pharaohs actually conquered Joppa like back in the days of Moses. So when the children of Israel fled Egypt and were heading north, they were going in their minds out of the frying pan and into the fire. Now, I don't give any excuses for their faithlessness. But it helps you understand a little bit why they were so hesitant to go and to keep wanting to go back. And their mind is like, you know, we're, we're running from Pharaoh to Pharaoh. He owns this whole area. Joppa is known for that back in the days of Pharaoh. Around the first century, a famous Greek a poet wrote a story, maybe uh, wrote it down because people had already known it. This is one of the earliest versions of the story. It's about Andromeda and Cassiopeia. So Cassiopeia said, my daughter is so beautiful. She's even more beautiful than the sea nymphs. Well, the god of the ocean got mad at that, Poseidon or Neptune, whatever his name was. And he said, well, because you said that, I'm going to come destroy your city. So they took Andromeda and chained her to a rock as a sacrifice to the god so the city wouldn't be destroyed. If you've watched Clash of the Titans over the last few years on major blockbuster movie, that's the story they based it on. Well, you see those rocks right there in this picture? These right here? Those are actually the rocks that Strabo based his story on. It's that famous story, Greek story, you would think happened in Greece, but no, it's right here in Joppa. Let's go back to the previous slide. All right, so there's the hotels and the, all the apartment buildings and stuff. Go back to the next picture. We're in one of these high-rises looking back where we were sitting over here just to give you an idea of where we're at. We're not that far from where we, you just saw us sitting. And right in this general area is the port where Jonah fled and tried to get away from God's will. You remember that story? God said, Jonah, I want you to go and preach to the Gentiles in Nineveh to repent of their sins. And Jonah said, no. And he got in a boat, and instead of heading towards Iran to Nineveh, he got in his boat and fled towards Spain, running from God. Now, that's smart. I could just see God sitting in the boat going like, are we there yet? <laughs> How do you run from God? How do you get away from God? That's like the dumbest thing I've ever heard. 
It's kind of like, I think I'll run away from air. <laughs> you can't get away from God. But he was desperate. He would try anything. So he fled from God. You know the story. And God sent a big storm at the boat. And the boat people had to throw him out. And a fish ate him. And spit him back up on shore. And God said, I said, go to Nineveh. Jonah said, okay. <laughs> Joppa is where he got on the boat. I think perhaps the most important story of that which happened at Joppa. Let's keep this slide up, Paul. I'm going to mention the next slide, but don't go there just yet. Down the coast, and I'm going to show you this in a few minutes, was a town called Caesarea. Caesarea was pretty much the capital of the area for the Roman Empire. That's where the big, magnificent buildings and palaces were and the biggest port in the area. It was amazing. We'll talk about it in a minute. But living in Caesarea was a, a centurion named uh, Cornelius. And he was a, a man of God. He liked the God of Israel, but he wasn't Jewish. And he was praying to God one day, and an angel appeared to him. And he said, we've heard, God has heard your prayers. I want you to send some men to Joppa. There's a man there named Peter, staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. Send for him, and he'll tell you what you need to know. So he gets a few men together, and he sends them up the coast to Joppa. Now, while these guys are heading towards Joppa, the apostle Peter is up on a roof at the coast praying. Well, I took my group over to a rooftop area, and I showed them, okay, this is your typical roof patio. This is what Peter would have been praying on. And while Peter was praying, he had a vision. And he saw this giant, like, blanket coming down from heaven. And on the blanket was a bunch of animals that, like, only Randy would eat. Lizards and snakes and all sorts of unkosher stuff. And he hears a voice from heaven, Peter, get up, kill something, and eat it. Now, Peter's an Orthodox Jew. I, I don't eat that stuff. That's gross. And this happened to him three times. And Peter's trying to figure out what this dream, vision, could possibly mean. God telling a Peter, to eat something nasty and unkosher? Why would God say that? That doesn't make sense. What's this vision mean? What's this vision mean? And while he's thinking about it, there's a knock on the door. <laughs> Is Peter here? There's some soldiers. Oh, great. That's what you want. Somebody pounding on your door and they're soldiers. So Peter says, yes. Um, Cornelius, a centurion, a God-fear, lives in Caesarea, told us to come get you. Well, the Holy Spirit had just told Peter, I'm sending some men to you. Don't doubt. Go with them. Okay? Don't doubt. He had to tell him that because Jewish guys didn't go hang out with Gentiles. That didn't happen. He had to tell him, don't doubt. Besides, now what do you do with these guys? They just travel all the way from Caesarea. You can't send them back home. They've got to spend the night somewhere. You can't put up Gentile soldiers in your house. Holy Spirit said, don't doubt. So Peter hosted them. Imagine the scandal. It would be like if I was a single pastor and I put a woman up at my house overnight. What would you think? He was the talk of the town. It was a scandal. Next day, he accompanies them, goes back down to Caesarea. Go, go ahead and pull up the side of Caesarea. I'm going to show you some more in a moment. Um, I already told you in Caesarea, uh, it was the, uh, you know, major, a major Roman city. He goes there, and Cornelius says, hey, God told me to send for you. He said, what do you want? He said, I don't know. God told me to send for you. 
And at this moment, Peter realizes what his vision meant. Oh, God didn't want me to call anybody unclean. I get it. It's not about the food. It's about the people. It's a scandal to have a Gentile in my house. That's no longer the case. So Peter starts to tell him about Jesus. He said, let me tell you what, what happened. And while he's telling him the story about Jesus, tongues of fire come down, there's a mighty wind, and they start speaking in foreign languages. This is exactly what happened to the Jewish guys at Pentecost. The exact same thing God did to the Jews, he did to the Gentiles. And now Peter fully gets the, the picture. God is accepting the Gentiles in the exact same way that he accepts the Jews. No difference. Ah, now I get it. And even though Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, he used Peter to start it off. So Jonah is told to go to the Gentiles. He refuses. He'd rather die. God sends him anyway. Peter is told to go to the Gentiles, and it takes a vision, an angel, and the voice of the Holy Spirit for him to finally understand what God's doing. And then he does understand. So now we're in Caesarea. That's the coast city. And... In addition to there being all the, there was like a stadium there for, you know, the horse races, the big Roman stadium. We walked through part of that. It's huge. There's a, a, a theater. Some of that's been reconstructed. We were on the steps of that theater. Um, Herod had a palace there. And they've even uncovered the foundation of his swimming pool. Let's take a look. This is King Herod the Great's swimming pool. Right on the Mediterranean Sea. You can see the outline of it clearly here. It's roughly Olympic-sized. Um, here are some mosaics they've uncovered. When I was there a couple years ago, uh, not as much of this was uncovered, so they have since dug up more. Right around the corner here is like a little hill, and our people got to climb over to that hill and pick up some pot shards that were d discovered when they dug up the city. So people came home with pot shards from Caesarea. Really cool. And then we'll keep this picture here for now. We walk from here, just over here a little bit, and I said, did you know, in addition to um, Peter coming here, the Apostle Paul was arrested and imprisoned here. And I walked them over and I said, right here, we're standing on the spot of where the jail was in the days of the Apostle Paul. So you're standing in his cell room, for better or for worse. Even though the cell wasn't there, the floor was still there. So that was right around the corner there. Probably the best discovery made at Caesarea is this next one. Let's take a look. By the way, Anne, Alan, look at that. Isn't that a stately gentleman? It's almost like he's posing. Look how cool I am. I was just taking a picture of the rock. I didn't even know you were there. But that is an awesome photograph of you. So let me tell you about this right here. I've shared this kind of thing with you so many times. There's always these people that say, oh, the Bible's not true. They just make up these stories. And then archaeology always proves that the Bible is true. One of the things that they said was made up in the New Testament was the person called Pontius Pilate. Now think about it for a moment. If the scientists say Pontius Pilate wasn't real, that means nobody condemned Jesus. The whole Jesus story isn't real. So... The connections are extremely important. Now, the Bible said Pontius Pilate is real, and by golly, he's real. All the archaeologists say, never a record of him anywhere in, he, in human history until they dug up Caesarea. Let me read to you what this 
thing says. And as you can see, it's broken, it's, it's shattered, it's been reconstructed, but nobody argues about the interpretation. Here's what it says. To the divine Augustus, this Tiberium, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, Judea has dedicated this. So Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, sponsored part of the building project over here. He had a stone with all that engraved on it, as a, like a dedication, like a memorial, and they dug it up. The original is now in the Jerusalem Museum, and this is a, a reproduction that they put on site for us to take pictures of and touch and be near. It's pretty cool. You know, this church right here, if you walk outside the main sanctuary, turn right, look at the wall, there's a brick with carving in it, dedicated 1960 or something like that. We do this kind of thing all the time. So they dug this up, and it's just one of those really cool things. To me, this is one of the best sites. It's got the most appeal, because it's right on the ocean. Unfortunately, I, I, I don't have time to show you the castle. I don't have time to show you the um, hippodrome. I don't have time to show you the theater. We're just going to have to move on to another site. You want to see those things, you're going to have to come with me next April to Israel. All right, next picture. I am standing, when I'm taking this picture, overlooking the Valley of Jezreel on top of a tell, a hill, called Megiddo. Very famous hill. In fact, the oldest cities in the world are here. They've never unearthed a more ancient city than right here. A tell is, imagine you have a town on a little hill, or maybe even on flat ground, and then it's destroyed. War, earthquake, whatever. So they take the, build on top of it, take some of the stones, use them. This goes on for like 27 layers at this tell. I mean, it's crazy. This tell has been there forever. Very strategic. Between Egypt and getting up into the north of Israel and then off into Europe, you got to pass through Israel. It's the easiest route. And there's hills on one side, there's this cool valley, and then there's ocean on the other side. So this was the route that people had to take. This was the trade route. So if you controlled this hill, you controlled the trade, you controlled the area. It was a significant strategic spot. So it's no wonder that King Solomon built a fort here. They've uncovered some of the layers of Solomon's palace and his stables. And we got to walk around and look at the stables and stuff, and that was pretty cool. But the best part was taking the stairs 90 feet below ground, going from like 90 degrees down to like 70 degrees. It was nice, you know, go underground, how cool it is, like a cave. Because King Ahab decided if they're ever besieged at Megiddo, they need to get to water. And the water's like 90 feet down and 200 feet over. So he dug through solid earth, next picture, a, wa a way to get to the water. And uh, this is one of a couple of our people. I just stood there and took a picture of them. And it was, it was cool. Thing is, this is back in the days of King Ahab, like 850 or so BC. They didn't have jackhammers and dynamite. How did they do this? How did they start at point A and point B and meet in the middle? I don't know how they did it. All I know is they did it. And it's considered one of the most significant engineering feats of that era. And we get to walk through it. It is so cool. And King Ahab. The wicked Ahab mentioned in the Bible, husband of Jezebel is the one who made that. But probably the coolest thing about Tel Megiddo is just its name. Hill or mountain in Hebrew is Har. This is Har Megiddo. Let me read to you a passage of scripture, Revelation 16, 16. They gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Har-Megiddo. Har Most people think Armageddon refers to Har-Megiddo. 
Now, next slide. So the battle of Armageddon, most people think is going to happen here in this huge plain that you see. This is all farmland and stuff. Well, not all of it. But you can see the armies of the world gathered here going to war. Now, I'm going to show you another picture of this same valley. This is the Jezreel Valley, but from the top of Mount Carmel. Let's take a look. Megiddo's way off here somewhere, you know, way back in here. So this is huge, almost as far, well, not quite as far as the eye can see, but it's huge. How many of you can see these two little lines right here? Can you see those from where you're sitting? What is, what's that look like to you? Yeah, airport. It is. But it's not a public airport. It's an Air Force base. One of the main Air Force bases in Israel. So here we are, standing on Mount Carmel, talking about the Valley of Armageddon, where the biggest battle of the world is going to take place, and they just happened to coincidentally put one of their main Air Force bases there. And while we're standing there talking about it, jets are flying over our heads. It's like, yeah, God, you know what you're talking about. Even thousands of years ago, it makes perfect sense. It can give you chills. Well, let's move a little further away from here, go up north to the Sea of Galilee. My first picture of the Sea of Galilee, please. I said, hey, boy, stop the van, stop the van. I want a picture of this. The Dead Sea, which the Sea of Galilee drains into through the Jordan River, is the lowest point on planet Earth. Unfortunately, I don't have any pictures for you this week of the Dead Sea. I'll give them to you next week. But even the Sea of Galilee is below sea level, as you can see by the sign here. See, you got the ocean, you got the hill country, and you got this thing called the Great Rift Valley that extends like from the Dead Sea all the way up to Europe. It's this huge fault line. There's some of the world's biggest earthquakes happen there. It's a very chaotic area. So you got the beautiful ocean, you got the hills, and then boom, down below sea level. And you've got this beautiful farmland, and then this rocky stuff, and then it just becomes desert and the Dead Sea. This area around the Sea of Galilee itself is very diverse. Like, look at these hills here. Don't they just look stark and barren? But there's some of the greatest produce and crops from all the area, just from around that area. Unfortunately, I don't have time to show that to you, but it was very lush and green all over the place. It was beautiful. Um, next picture. That's just our group standing there, same spot, overlooking the tail end of the uh, Sea of Galilee, which you can't see the whole sea from here, and sea is like an exaggeration. It's a lake. It's about 12 miles long and about 8 miles wide. To an Arizonan, it's a big lake. <laughs> to somebody from Michigan, it's a duck pond. <laughs> but it is the biggest wa freshwater lake in Israel. It's like really the only one there. Well, I want to give you another view of the Sea of Galilee. This is us on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. Now, they're all looking at whoever's taking the picture. Am I in this picture? I think I'm taking this picture. Yeah, I took this picture. They're all looking at me. but. Look at what's behind me. Next picture. So this is their view. Now, we're, we're just barely off ashore, as you can see. But this is Mount Arbel, Harm Arbel. This one's not a tell. It's just a mountain. It's mentioned several times in the Bible by name. A lot of people think that's where the Sermon on the Mount happened. Nobody knows for sure. We know he went up to a mountain to, to do this. And that's the biggest mountain in the area. So a lot of people think, and it's a famous mountain. Maybe the commissioning of the, the apostles after the resurrection of Jesus might have happened here too, a lot of people think. Historically, 
huge things happened here. The one I want to share with you. Um, all right. Rome is taking an interest in this part of the world. Right now, the area of Israel is run by a Hashmonean family. You might have heard of the Maccabees. The Maccabees cleansed the area from the Greeks and the Syrians, and they became the leaders of Israel, just to make it real simple. The Maccabees are in control. Well, they're having a hard time with the Syrians and with all these people, so they send ambassadors and emissaries to Rome to try to get support to maintain their independence and to be strong and to have big Rome on their side. We're talking about the time of Julius Caesar, roughly, and Antony and Cleopatra and Augustus. So, right before this, the Maccabees start conquering more area than they had, and they pick up an area near the Dead Sea called Idumea, and they force all the Gentiles there, all the Arabs and whoever else lived there, all the Greeks, forced them to either leave or become Jews. So they converted these people by force to Judaism. Not a good policy, but that's what they did. One of the guys' names was Antipater, and he was buddy-buddy with Rome. And so they gave Antipater the leadership of that area, and he gave it to his son, Herod. That's how Herod got in. So it was kind of the Jewish people made a big mistake forcing conversion on those people. Rome told Herod, you can control the whole area, but you got to deal with the Maccabees. So Herod went to war with the remaining Maccabees. They fled to Arbel. There's all sorts of caves in that mountain. And what Herod did, smart guy, he didn't try to work his way up. He took all the soldiers to the top, had them lowered down in baskets, and he smoked the people out, stuck in big hooks, and pulled them off to their death. And he's the one that destroyed the rest of the Jewish dynasty known as the Maccabees. Good old guy. It wasn't just babies he liked killing. He liked killing everybody. Um, so you're looking at Mount Arbel from the Sea of Galilee. Now I'm going to show you the Sea of Galilee from the top of Mount Arbel. Next slide. So we actually went up there. My first trip to Israel, we climbed it. We didn't do that on this trip. We took the bus and then we walked the last few hundred yards. Talk about a climb. Oh, man, I will never do that again. That was hard. It was scary. It was dangerous. No, thanks. Remember I told you it was green and lush and farms everywhere? I mean, check it out. It's awesome. It's beautiful. They used to provide the majority of the crops to Europe. Not anymore. Now they're into high-tech stuff, but they still make all sorts of stuff. Well, on the Sea of Galilee are a lot of famous things that you know about, including Capernaum. Next picture. This is a look at the village of Capernaum. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. His family, when Herod tried to kill him, fled to Egypt. They came back and lived in Nazareth. When he started his ministry, he chose to headquarter it in Capernaum. You're looking at some of the houses of the people from the days of Jesus. These are the walls and the floors and the ground of their houses. This is the kind of village that Jesus lived in. For all we know, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this, this could have been Jesus' house right here. I mean, it, it was a small village, maybe 1,500 people. So one of these places he might have lived in. In fact, I'll show you this in a moment. Leave this slide here. The Apostles Peter's house was found right here. The picture I'm taking and showing you, I'm standing at the entrance to the synagogue. So now you see how far Peter lived from the synagogue. Heck, nobody lived far from the synagogue. Even though it was a small town, it was strategic and it was important. It was a commercial center of that area of Galilee. There was a tax collector there, Matthew, who ended up becoming a follower of Yeshua. 
It was on what's known as the Way of the Sea, or the Via Maris, another part of that trade route I was telling you about. Everybody had to walk near Capernaum. So that was the perfect place for Jesus to anchor his ministry so he could go out and teach the gospel everywhere, and then everybody would come through and take the message and go with him. It was, it was very strategic. So I want to show you the next picture. So the previous picture was looking here. I'm just giving you a wider shot. That's the end of the village right here. I don't know if that's just where they chose to stop digging or that's the actual end. I, I honestly don't know. And that's the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's, it's on the Sea of Galilee. It's just right there. So there are a lot of fishermen live there. Some of the apostles that were fishermen lived there. I wanted to show you, though, in this picture, again, the distance from the synagogue, which is right here, to Peter's house, which is right here. How do we know it's Peter's house? Well, oftentimes in archaeology, there's a lot of guesswork. And maybe 400 years later, somebody says, oh, yeah, that's where so-and-so did such-and-such. And then you wonder, you know, it's 400 years. Is that really what happened? But with Peter's house, there is evidence of it being his house all the way back to the second century. So it's only a few years past the events themselves. They found some graffiti on those walls in the second century that said, this is the home of the Apostle Peter. And from that time to this day, people have identified that as the home of the Apostle Peter. I got a close-up for you. They've got several levels because the house of Peter was in, in here where this opening is right here. They built a church around it. The church was destroyed. They built another church around it. It was destroyed. They built a church over it. So now you can see the other churches from way back. This is like a third century church here. And so there's layers, you know, over time they did different things. But at the heart of it is the home of the apostle Peter. Now, I gave you a close-up of Peter's house. Let me give you a close-up of the synagogue. This black stone is the stone of the region. It's basalt. This stone on top is stone that's shipped in. This foundation that they built the white stone on was the foundation of the synagogue that Jesus worshipped in. The very one. This stone, they believe, is a later synagogue that was put on top of that foundation when that synagogue was destroyed. Um, how it was destroyed? Now, earthquake, war, I don't know. I just know that they dug down deep enough. This is the first century synagogue floor right here. And then they built a synagogue on top of it. Let's take a look at the synagogue they built on top. Next slide. Paul, next slide. You should have another one. Oh, well, I guess you don't get to see it. <laughs> if you find it, you find it. If you don't, you don't. How's that? But there should be, uh, yeah, one more picture available. Let me tell you what happened in this synagogue. Mark 1.21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out. So Jesus is going to worship, he's going maybe to teach, and there's a demon-possessed guy in his synagogue, just like in ours. Sorry, verse 24. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. And the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Wow, talk about dramatic. The people were so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? 
a new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly. Yes, it did. It was significant. And it happened in Capernaum where it was easier for it to spread from. News spread about him quickly over the whole region of Galilee. And as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. To Simon, to Peter's house. Close your eyes. Picture it. You know exactly how far the walk was. You know what the houses looked like in between. He walked from the synagogue to Peter's house. All of like 30 seconds. I mean, he was there. We know it now. We've been there. They left the synagogue. They went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. And they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, helped her up, and the fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Well, if you've got that picture, you can bring it up. If not, that's cool. Oh, there it is. Thank you. So the synagogue that was built afterwards, this is the main entrance looking in. You're looking at the first story only. That's all they have reassembled. On top of this would have been a whole other story. And this would be the foundation of the second story. We know this because we went behind this wall and there was a doorway entrance up here. So we know that there was uh, in a ramp another story up there. The synagogue of Jesus' day was built by a Gentile. So we started off in Jaffa with God telling Jonah to go preach the gospel to non-Jews. He resisted. He fled. Then we are in Joppa, and God tells Peter, and I'm putting it all together, go down to Caesarea, preach the gospel to Gentiles. Vision, three times, Holy Spirit, an angel, the falling of fire, the Holy Spirit again, now Peter's got it. Minister to Gentiles. Now we go to Capernaum, the town that rejected Jesus for the most part, even though he lived there. Their synagogue was built by a Gentile. Let me read to you something about this particular Gentile. When Jesus had finished saying all these things to the people, he went to Capernaum. A Roman officer there had a servant who was very dear to him, and the man was sick and about to die. When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to ask him to come and to heal his servant. They came to Jesus and begged him earnestly, this man really deserves your help. He loves our people, and he himself has built a synagogue for us. Ah. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the officer sent friends to tell him, Sir, don't trouble yourself. I don't deserve to have you come into my house. I don't consider myself worthy to come to you in person either. You understand what's going on here? We've got a Roman centurion who doesn't feel himself worthy to go talk to a Jewish rabbi. This man's faith, his heart is stellar. You know, he didn't dare go to Jesus himself, but he asked the elders who he had a relationship with, would you go on my behalf? Imagine you're a private. You're not going to go to the general and say, hey, dude, will you do me a favor? Not a chance. But if you know a captain or a major... Or even a lieutenant colonel who's a buddy of yours, you might say, hey man, you think you might do me a solid and talk to the general for me? Now, if the private has, you know, built the officer's club, maybe he'd go for him. That's the kind of thing going on here. He says, I'm just a centurion. I don't deserve to go talk to this guy. 
He says, I too am a man placed under the authority of superior officers. I have soldiers under me. I order this one go, he goes. I order that one come, and he comes. I say to my slave, do this, he does it. I don't deserve to come to you. And I don't need you coming to me. Just say the word. You can heal my servant from over there. You don't have to come to my house. Jesus was surprised when he heard this. He turned around and said to the crowd following him, I tell you, I have never found faith like this, not even in Israel. He turned around to the Jewish crowd following him. and said, this Gentile guy, he's got more faith than you guys. I like these words here. Jesus was surprised. You tell me, what's it take to surprise the Son of God? You don't see those words too often in the Bible. Faith of a Gentile. Faith of a Gentile. Both happen to be centurions. Soldiers, in this case. Let me tell you something. Faith, not ethnicity, is the key to having a solid relationship with God. doesn't matter if your dad was a pastor and your mom was a choir leader. It's got nothing to do with genealogy. It's got to do with personal faith. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're German or Mexican or Indian. What matters is your faith. God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't hold one group over another group. He holds faith over everything. So before I let you go this morning, I want to give you three ways to grow your faith. Okay? Very simple. Maybe you're like uh, me. You believe in God. You follow him, but you want more faith. This is for you. But maybe you're like, you know, I've never even made a commitment to Jesus. I've thought about it, but I don't have enough faith to do it. This is also for you. Three ways to grow your faith. Number one, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I can tell you solidly, I became a believer because I read the Bible. It just grabbed my soul and made a believer out of me. If you want to grow in faith, study the word of God. Whether you're a believer or not a believer, it will grow your faith. You want more faith? Study the word of God. Number two, pray and ask God to increase your faith. There was a guy whose son was possessed by a demon, not the one in the synagogue we were just talking about. And he came to Jesus and said, please heal my son. Can you do anything for him? Jesus said, said yes, if you have faith. And the guy fell down crying at Jesus' feet and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I have faith. Maybe not enough. You help me, please. Help me have more faith. So you want more faith? Ask God. Say, God, help my unbelief. Give me more faith. When you pray to God earnestly like that, he will answer you. No questions about it. And number three, make a decision to follow Jesus today. If you've not made the decision, you really believe in him, but you've not really wanted to commit to following him. Make the commitment. Become a follower of God. These three things will grow your faith, and I encourage you to put them all into practice. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, thank you for letting me and a group of us here from Book of Life visit the land of Israel. And I pray that we'd be able to do the same next year and bring another group to enjoy the holy land and to see the things we saw and to feel the things we felt to experience the things we experienced together. Lord, two centurions who weren't even, you know, Jewish, 
had more faith than anybody else. God, may we have their faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.